Welcome to Thrive at Work, the podcast that brings trends, insights, and practical tips to help employers attract, develop, and retain great people. Here, you'll find inspiring conversations with experts in their field and companies doing amazing work to shape a future where people can thrive. Welcome to this episode of Thrive at Work. I am really excited today to be joined by Amy Williams, MBE, former British skeleton racer and Olympic gold medalist, having won gold in the skeleton race in the Vancouver Winter Olympics in 2010. Amy is now very much in demand as a TV presenter, inspirational speaker and personal trainer running her own gym and fitness business. I'm really excited to hear her story and hear what lessons we might learn from Amy's experience of performing at elite level. So welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Um, So um, if you wouldn't mind, could you talk us through your experiences and your story, how you got to do what you did and your training and your experiences at the Olympics? That would be amazing. Yeah. um, Wow. So um, Yeah, I I started Skeleton in 2002 um, with a background of, well, really being the kid at school that tried absolutely everything and being a very active outdoor kind of family. Um, And then I really kind of honed in on athletics. That was kind of my love, um, trying to do most events when I was younger, but then sort of going more into the sprints, the 200s, the 400s. Yeah, and I was training sort of twice a week, then that went to three times a week, and that went to four times a week, and up in and up in. And um, I just sort of started to have quite a lot of injuries, sort of um, like compartment syndrome, so shin splints. So uh, I had a lot of pain in my shins, and I just wasn't able to do that longer distance training that you needed for like 400 so Mm. my eyes were kind of you know what else could I transfer into what could I transfer those skills across into and I think very luckily it was very much right time right place living in Bath and training at the University of Bath they had just built a start track for bobsleigh and skeleton and that was built in the summer well it was for the 2002 winter olympics in february so it must have been built in 2001 and i basically just went and had a go i started um i just got nosy with some people in the gym and like what do you do yeah we do skeleton and bobsleigh we're about to have a go oh can i come and have a look you know and it was as simple as that i kind of nosied my way in and went and had a go on this start session um and then, yeah, I mean, got myself into the sport, taking a chance, you know, transitioning that power and speed off the block, pushing the sled. And then I was asked, well, look, actually, why don't you have a go on the ice? See if you like it, because that's just the start. So almost skeleton, we, we break into two parts, the sprint and the start and the push, and then the actual driving the sled down an ice track. And so I went off and I actually joined a military ice camp in October of 2002 uh, in Lillehammer in Norway. Two weeks off I went with a few other kind of civilian people who wanted to try the sport. Um, And it was not love at first sight. (laughs) I definitely, when you're bumping every wall and you're black and blue with bruises and, you know, you're freezing cold. and Yeah, but there was something that, you know, just lit that little spark and 
okay, I don't want to hit all those walls on the way down. And actually, I only want to hit a little bit and I want to hit one <laughs> less. And I guess the competitiveness of all these army people and I don't want to be that little civilian wimp, you know, like I've got to dig deep here, hard as nails. Uh, and that was, I guess, the start of them coming home and making different decisions in life to be able to actually let's stay in Bath and let's do this. The National Training Centre for Skeleton and Bobsleigh was Bath and Bath University um and I guess sort of the rest is history but it's um all winter sports is a very summer winter life and especially for us so we broke up our life into the summer living at home uh training like a sprinter at the University of Bath weight sessions speed sessions these push sessions core sessions you know the whole looking after your body getting strong and fast and then all winter we would then be on the road five, six months, traveling from different countries, different nations, um, learning, sliding, racing, um, and being on like that kind of winter circuit. Um, um, yeah, and then I guess that was it. I kind of, well, you didn't do tons of sliding to begin with because it's it was money and we didn't have the money in the sports. You'd come home, I had a full-time jobs. Um, and then eventually I kind of got good enough to get some lottery funding and the sport got better and we brought home more medals. And slowly that enabled me to become then a full-time athlete and you got better and better. And you were then aiming for world championships and on that World Cup circuit. And then your eye every four years is on an Olympic Games. And for me, I wasn't quite ready. We had one place on the girls team for Turin Olympics in 2006. So I went out just as reserve. I didn't make that place. And then, um, I mean, that was a big turning point for me. And I just vowed like blinkers on, we should be good enough as a nation in four years to get two places in Vancouver. Like, I'm going to be one of those places. And that was a real kind of shift. Like every decision of every day is only going to be directed and dedicated to me making sure I'm in Vancouver to compete. Wow. That's a lot of focus, isn't it, on that one thing? Yeah, sure. And I think, I think unless you've known an athlete, lived with an athlete, or anyone who um, is very, very dedicated um, to their job or sport or whatever it might be, you have to be, you know, so driven, so determined. You know, all those D's, the the drive, the determination, <laughs> the, you know, the passion. And you have to be quite obsessive about it. You've got to be quite, um, you know, every decision is for you to be the best athlete that you can be. It's sort of that quite selfish life because, you know, you want to go to sleep when you want to go to sleep. You need to eat when you need to sleep. Eat. You know, you every decision is about you making your body stronger and faster and healthier. And um, yeah, and it's quite a kind of in one sense lonely life because you do your training, you go home, you rest, you eat, you train again and you go to bed early. Um, <laughs> and unless you've got friends who are in the same life, um, you know, you feel like you miss out on quite a lot, I think, as a younger age. But ultimately, yeah, you love you love that, you know, you love it. And that's why you want to do it and the passion for it. Amazing. Absolutely. So tell us then what happened after that. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess that kind of missing out on the Turin Olympics, you know, and that turning point. So um, 
in sport, we're very good at, I guess, well, like anyone, like an, an analysis and looking at always constantly improving. And I guess that's a kind of link to the business as well in that mm. we would meet as a sport um, twice a year um, before a winter season and after a winter season. And we'd all sit around, whether you were a coach, an athlete, a staff member, um, you know, the physio, whoever it was. And we would do um, just simple SWOT analysis, your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, your threats. And we'd write them all down. We'd look at each track that we'd slid at. Um, why did we perform well? Why did we not perform well? What was working with our equipment? Um, what wasn't working? Um, the technical side of the tracks so are learning the lines. We walk the tracks, we make notes. Um, how is our physical training? So how's that going in the gym every day? How's your sprinting? What do you need to improve on? Uh, do you need to lift heavier to then be more powerful, to then be faster at sprinting and the knock-on effect? And so we would write all this down and we would, you know, get all those little sticky notes around the room and like you do in any <laughs> business meeting and corporate, you know, uh, end of season, whatever. Um, but it meant that we came out of it with this kind of, bible of these are your goals these are what you need to do and everyone's in the team has done it and I think that's where it really started to create the trust within the team the team building the value of every member of the team to do their job um, knowing that the staff and your coaches were doing the best they could to make you the best athlete you trust in them and them trust in you that you're doing the work and I think um you know, I've been in the teams where that's worked and teams where it hasn't worked. And when it does work, you know, you're you're focused and the, and the results come. And I think shifting in that mindset, um, you know, really does allow you to perform and write mm. those little goals. You know, yeah. it's a way, isn't it? Every goal is a little one percent and every single one percent that you can improve marginal gains and all of those lovely words that we love in sport and business. <laughs> and it really does make a difference. I was just going to pick up on that, actually, because they seem like quite small changes that you were making, potentially. But overall, I suppose if you're making those very small improvements, you're going to see results and a bigger outcome, you know, overall, which is amazing. I love that. Yeah. And I think uh, there's this quote that I really need to find because I can never remember it. But, <laughs> you know, it, it was a swimming coach about just doing that one extra length and that one extra session and, you know, that could be one extra inch that inch could be one hundredth of a second when you touch the board you know and and all those tiny little things mount up we oh. um, we can win and lose a race by one one hundredth of a second oh. so imagine oh. that being well actually could I have just eaten better and performed better and eaten more protein for the repair of my muscles and then I could have done the next training session a little bit better and if I did more stretching and recovery, would my muscles have been better the next day to train and therefore lift heavier and lifting heavier and that knock on effect of your power and your speed. And if I'm, you know, a tenth of a second quicker at the top of the track, that might make me two tenths quicker at the bottom or, mm. you know, these tiny little things that for me, it was very much you know leaving no stone unturned and not having the regrets that I stood on that start line and I missed stuff or I was sloppy or I'd forgotten or I couldn't be bothered to do ice baths each day or I couldn't be bothered to do whatever like I never wanted to have that 
you know, and it was a way for me of boosting my confidence and knowing I prepared obsessively mm. better than mm. anyone else. Mm. Uh, but that takes such a lot of dedication and discipline. And I imagine as well, a fair amount of pressure in terms of mindset, because if you if you could think, you know, oh, I could have done better or I could have eaten better. And you'll know that you had that one day where you didn't or you couldn't be bothered or whatever it was. That's a huge amount of pressure, isn't it? Yeah. And I think all athletes, all people work in very different ways, don't we? We've all got different personalities and mm. I'm definitely not like that now. You know, it was a definite athlete thing. Um, and that's who I was at that point in my life, for sure. I mean, I could switch into that person if needs be, but definitely now as a retired you know, person and mom, I'm like, oh, I don't like living like that anymore. Although I sometimes crave the consistency. Um, but yeah, I think for me, um, you know, it comes as a surprise to quite a lot of people. I wasn't the most confident athlete. Like I didn't naturally have that confidence and that swagger and that I'm, you know, I'm nailing this and I can do it. I didn't have that. And so for me, the confidence had to come from other ways and my confidence of knowing yeah i've i've prepared better than my all other athletes i've um learned the the track as well as i can i've got my body in the best shape that i can i'm confident that i'm as fast as i can be and i can push my sled i was always top 3 in the world at pushing my sled so for me it really was all those little things mm. and um yeah that that's how I worked well to know mm. actually whatever now happens today when I'm sliding this is going to be a hundred percent my best so if I only come second or six or tenth I could not have done another thing to have improved that performance um and that's for me that's how it all kind of built up and um really realizing those little marginal gains do add up oh. um, at the end you know I won my race by over half a second which has wow. never been done before you know it was a huge margin um, oh. over four runs two days of racing four day, four runs but when I'm where yeah, when I've won and lost between hundredth of a second to be over half a second I mean it's massive oh. Oh, indeed um, I'm, I'm really keen to ask you about the actual your actual experience of being at the Olympics. But first, um, I just want to go back to your your team and the importance of having that team around you. And I'm just wondering if they challenged you, if they sort of did keep on your back a little bit, like Amy, are you doing this today? <laughs> are you doing this this week? Have you done this today? Yeah. Or whether it was just all planned out in advance? Um, that's actually quite a tricky one. I've never really thought about it in that way. And actually no one's ever asked me that before. I think, you know, day to day you had your, um, your physical training diary. So mm. there was a coach every day and you'd meet in the gym at whatever time, eight o'clock. Um, and so you knew like you were doing a weight session on a Monday morning at eight o'clock and mm. there was a specific list of exercises that you were doing. And, you know, 99% of the time your coach would be there watching you. Um, mm. So yes, in that sense, she's done it ticked um I actually most of the time always turned up really really early to do you know extra stretching and extra you know little stabilization exercises or to just wear off niggly injuries um so I probably went above and beyond for sure mm. um, 
but yeah I guess sometimes they were there to see if you did your recovery you know there was literally mm. a bath that we were booked into or um you know when we were out in the winter it might have been a frozen lake at the bottom of um, the track <laughs> um but yeah, they don't know what food you're putting in your body, for example. That's you as an athlete. Um, and in my era, we didn't have nutritionists or anything. It was either okay. you searching or just, yeah, someone else somewhere who I trust has said, right, eat five to six meals a day and make sure you've got yeah. 30 grams of protein in each meal. Okay, cool. Mm. You know, now mm. technology, everything, knowledge has increased and they do have nutritionists and it's a huge, you know, tapped in, you know, uh, science you know Mm. um so yeah I guess no in one sense no one was really checking up but on the flip side you know they had an inkling (laughs) um you know and your sled prep you had to keep on top of that yourself when you were abroad um and and sliding every day so Mm. we would literally you'd slide you go back to the hotel you'd look after your sled you'd get it all prepared for the next day of training So, for example, we have two metal runners on the bottom of our sled, like the tires of a car, and they can get scratched up, really fine scratches with grit and dirt and dust that flies onto the track. (laughs) And Mm. you don't want any of that on your runners. So we literally, we use very fine sandpaper, like a a thousand miller, a thousand whatever it is, sandpaper. Um, And we get all them out and it is hard graft. It is wow. sanding, literally sanding these runners nightly and getting up to maybe 5,000. So it's a really fine, so your metal is shining um, mm. and you prep your sled, make sure the bolts are okay, nothing's got loose. Or if you took a bit of a knock, is it all okay inside? So yeah, even the sled maintenance, you know, was your responsibility. Yes, mm. someone might check up, but it's your fault the next day if it doesn't mm-hmm. perform, something's wrong. They now do have sled technicians around with them. But back in my era, again, you were doing it all yourself. And that knowledge was the bond that you had with your sled. Sounds really silly. But like, you know, that was your piece of equipment that got you down the the, um, track. And bond and that feeling of comfortableness of I trust my equipment. um, Yeah, it was actually really important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It would be. Absolutely. Great, thank you. So tell us about your experiences at the Olympics. I'm really excited to hear about this. Oh my, like, where do I start? Crikey, it's kind of the area that I really know, talk about much. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's incredible. I think just even walking into the Olympic Stadium behind your Union Jack flag, you're all in your Team GB kit and, you know, wearing those Olympic rings and Team GB printed on your chest. I mean, that's just a massive moment of pride of I'm representing my country. You know, I've watched different Olympics my whole entire life and now it's me. Um, I mean, I wish you could bottle it all up. I mean, I didn't have <laughs> smartphones back then to be recording and filming and doing selfies and anything like that. You know, we just didn't have that. Um, and then ultimately, uh, so that was down in the Vancouver. And then we went up into the Whistler Village, which is where the mountain sports happened mm-hmm. and and then you're literally just doing your day job um you are doing your daily work you're getting your sled ready you're walking the track you're doing what you would do at any other competition mm-hmm. but then there's this strange thing that there's like thousands of people around and there's a giant food hall that is in massive like tents i guess every food under the sun that you can imagine 
Mm. but don't get distracted by it you know just eat the food that you think is as normal as possible and you know do the same things but you could be sat next to a giant ice hockey player from Slovakia and some tiny little ice dancer from China like you (laughs) it's kind of mind-boggling and you'd walk in and you'd be like okay I just need to find a team GB top like where is do I know anyone here or um yeah, it's just very overwhelming. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger mm. walked in with his whole team of security and people shouting him around, and you're like, "What? That's wow. like, oh wow! Like, this is mad." Um, and then the next minute, you're just back at your like apartment doing your usual stuff, prepping and planning, you know, doing your next thing, um, getting ready for your race. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the actual racing and trying to get used to the track. Um, yeah, it's, it was a tough one. I mean, we had, there was a really bad crash and accident. Um, a luge athlete died a few days before our race. Oh my gosh. The the track was the fastest track in the world. They put the ice on a little bit differently. They'd been a little bit, dare I say, sneaky with the ice. We only had the six runs to learn that track of how they put the ice on at that particular time. So Mm. we, in on it um well quite a few months before right at the very start of the season everyone got like a week but they can change the way the ice goes on it and in each corner so it can really change your steers from five months later Mm. so it was quite scary I mean yeah it was really scary not even quite it was petrifying it was very scary and you know the huge sadness when this luge athlete um died um and they offered one extra run from corner four I think it was um on the first day of training and actually only me and two other athletes took that extra run and I wanted to do it just to get those nerves out you know just like okay I'm gonna waste all my nerves on that run because I was always nervous the first run down you always convince yourself that you're gonna crash so Mm. I'm gonna use that one you're hitting each corner at a different speed. So it's it's different than going at the top. But I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get all my nerves out, know that I'm okay. And then when I go to the top, you know, I'll have more confidence. Mm. Um, and also it's that regret. It's that 1%. Like, why wouldn't I take it? Like, yeah, come on, let's do it. So one Japanese girl and one Italian girl and me were the only ones that did it. Um, um. But why wouldn't I, you know, yes, it makes you more tired. Yes, mentally, it's more fatiguing. But I'm going to do it. So, um, yeah, it's a little decisions like that. And then, yeah, you're into those training three days, two runs a day. And then getting ready for that for that race and prepping yourself physically, mentally. But ultimately telling yourself, it doesn't matter that it's the Olympic race. You would do the same if it was a training run. Like for me, I don't do anything differently. I prepare my sled I prepare my mind I prepare my body everything is consistent 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 every single day um so you're just trying to fake your own brain into not <laughs> panicking that it's the Olympic race and using that real mindset and techniques that you've used before and deep breathing and all that positivity um to go into race. the main thing you did do you think to prepare mentally for it was just try and, and tell yourself that you're just it's just the same as another training run and you're just going to prepare yourself in the same way and stay consistent uh yeah I mean in a nutshell yes <laughs> um but I think 
it's learned and it's practiced and I really tried to shift things over the the few years before mm. um, we did get given a psychologist just the year before the Olympics oh really and, um, I mean now they're part of the team you know it's we, mm. but we have that and I think it was for me I was always dubbed training champion like uh, by my coach so in all training days and training runs I put down some of the fastest times and I proved that I could be faster than everyone else and then I never quite did it on race day and it was really trying to think okay well what's the shift what's different why um and bottom line is because I told myself I had to win. I, I've beaten everyone in, in training. So therefore I have to, when it comes to the race day, and it, it means a lot more and you put more pressure and that could be 1% extra tension in your body on your sled. And then you and your sled skid a little bit, or mm. I don't know. I used to get really frustrated by it. Um, mm. And I think it was really about changing and, um, one of the chapters in my book that I, I wrote last year is all about that that mindset and turning negative stuff to positives and how can you just change a few words in your head. So um, I don't know, instead of saying, why am I so slow today? Well, actually, what's maybe the real reason? And it's like, well, you're slow because you did a heavy weight session yesterday and your legs are tired let's just say, or um, actually, I've got a really bad feeling in my tummy. I'm really nervous. Actually, let's flip that over and say, those feelings are the same whether you're nervous or excited. And actually, I'm really excited to race today to see how good I could be. You know, and just trying to shift over those simple things of um, not focusing in on the other girls, not focusing in on their performance and maybe the same in business, but actually, well, what can I control? I can't control their performance, but I can control doing some deep breaths at the start and I can control my body position on the sled and I can control how I warm up. So really shifting different things and um, what's emotional and what's facts and what's um reliable information and what's that um not reliable and not facts and actually just your thought process um and you, you could just be making that up so just actually doing that and shifting and you know it took like a good year or more of practicing that um and I think that's quite a good thing to become aware of um and to put into normal life mm, definitely I think how we talk to ourselves is so important they can have such an impact on how we behave and how we react to things and respond to things and ultimately how we sort of um you know what we achieve actually yeah um, so tell us about the race Amy <laughs> wow um yeah crikey I wish <laughs> wish I could remember it more um, <laughs> yeah I, I mean so it's a four run four runs to make the race up two runs on day one two runs on day four um they all count you can't just get rid of the worst one you go off your um world ranking so I was fifth ranked in the world going in so my bib was race number five um so I was fifth off the start so the fastest or the number one goes off first clearly in your on your ranking so I knew exactly when I had to go off and I prepared my warm up, my preparation to the minute of when I was going to be going off and, and sprinting. Um, and, and yeah, 
I mean, I powered off. I, I just went through almost the very basic things like having good position. You know, it almost rolls all back to that day one of learning the skeleton. Actually, if I don't have perfect body position and I'm super aerodynamic, you're not going to be that fast, you know? And so really simple things and sprinting off the top. I'm going to drive my knees forward and have all my little cues that I would do in the summer. Actually, yeah. eat the ground up, drive your knee forward, you know, load onto the sled, get into your body position super quick and then go to corner one and do all your steers counting your way through. Um, so I came down as fastest person and then it flips and res- reverses round. So the fastest person now goes off last. You have oh. a really long break. So a really long rest while you prepping your sled again well you're not actually allowed to prep it but it goes into its little part for me um and then number 20 goes off first all the way back up to number one so um I'd actually taken myself off to a different part of the changing room so part of my tactic of um not really talked about that with you yet but about being happy and knowing that I only perform when I'm happy and that kind of came down to that training that I did really well in training because I was just chilled out with my German friends and my Aussie mates and we were talking and it was all chilled and then on race day it's really serious and there's a different vibe in the room and the energy Mm. Um, Mm. and that obviously played with me so I just had to be happy and create this happy bubble so yeah I was in a different part of the changing room up near the physio beds on the next level and for me I was like I just want to be with the physio that was there um, and create my own little happy bubble I taped up the windows with flags so I couldn't see outside uh, I didn't listen to any of the other girls' times, their performances. I didn't know who was in the lead. I d- again, I can't control that. And that's not going to make me change what I'm about to do on my sled. So I didn't want to know. I just knew I'm last off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still finished that day one in first place. So then you have to go home, do all of your prep, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, eat your food, prep mm-hmm. your sled, get everything ready, do your recovery like any other race not trying to freak out that I'm in first place but also <laughs> kind of in my brain thinking oh yeah I've been here before like on a race you know or whatever it almost that same feeling like okay come on be positive but ultimately just do the same thing be consistent you are consistent you're always consistent that was always my number one thing about me I was misconsistent yeah and so then I was first off on that final day First one down the track, had the best ice, um, although the ice stayed very consistent there. Um, And then the same thing, I didn't listen to any of the other times, any of the other results, didn't matter. And then, um, you know, the kind of flipping around of being the last in the changing room. And I didn't know who was in second place or third place. I didn't know if anyone had shifted or someone done a terrible run and someone moved up, didn't know. So, yeah, and I think that was my tactic. That was my thing. I was obviously nervous, you know. <laughs> you can't pretend that your legs aren't shaking like a leaf. And I look back and I'm like, oh, I, I probably could have pushed a lot better. My form wasn't quite right. You know, I can fault myself. And you're not even putting down perfect runs because we just didn't have enough runs on it. So, you know, you were doing your very best. I don't even remember half of that last run. I, you know, a bit of that automatic oh, I'm at the bottom now. And then, and then obviously everyone else knows you've won before you know. Oh my gosh. Finish line, very uphill. You smash into loads of foam rollers because you don't have brakes or anything. Everyone else is cheering. Are they cheering for me? Are they cheering because someone else has 
actually <laughs> suddenly beaten me because I didn't have a good run because you know I made a few mistakes and and so yeah my one of the coaches was at the bottom he's the one I, I actually say to him where did I come and he's the one who says you're Olympic champion oh wow there's huge big um leader you know boards like electronic displays I just hadn't even looked at it you know it's just like crazy um so I didn't even see like oh yeah yeah my name's at the top oh cool <laughs> and then you're like oh I feel really shy like what do I do now like someone threw me a flag and I didn't even get it out right I held this on my head and you know I look back and I'm like oh I just wish I'd taken my time like I could have taken my helmet off my head you know we just kind of balance them on the back of our head and got that union jack flag out and shook it up and got it the right way around but I didn't like just suddenly aware that everyone is looking at me like oh my goodness like I feel really shy now what do I do um yes yeah, so really bizarre to be honest really bizarre feeling that's amazing and um so I guess you um you said you didn't know where anyone else had come you weren't listening to the times or how anyone else was doing and I suppose you know, it comes down to uh, back to comparing yourself with others, doesn't it? And um, which we all do. I think it's kind of natural in a way, um, but it can make you feel it can have an effect on how you feel, can't it? Because if someone if you see someone else doing, you know, what, what you think is better or something that's more worthy or whatever you might think, yeah. it, can make you, it can sort of have a detrimental effect on your own self-esteem or how you feel about yourself. Whereas you know, we're all on our own path and our own journey, aren't we? And you know what's good for you. Um, I think that took probably did that take a lot of um, a lot of willpower to shut that noise out because I think I would be too nosy. <laughs> yeah, no, it did, but it was a kind of process, and I had done it in quite a few races before. Um, and it came back to that kind of trust in the team. So we always study video footage. We always study the other girls sliding. We sit on the side of the tracks and we watch people slide through corners to see, oh, they were a little bit more left than that person. And how did it look like in the corner and what happened? Um, we do a lot of learning like that. Um, but at the time, I just trusted the coaches to be like, OK, you've looked at all the footage, you've done it. And for once, I'm not fussed. You just tell me, steer a little bit harder into corner nine. You need to be a little lower, for example. Oh. That could oh. change the way the sled moves and speed. So I just trust them like, okay, that's fine. I'll do that. Like, I, I don't want to look to see what others are doing because it, it just wasn't helpful for me. Mm. Um, and again, each to their own. Some athletes love to spend hours and hours studying um, and looking at graphs and, you know, where and which bits of the track are they losing speed? And, and yeah, maybe I should have done a bit more of that at other times of my life, but it just wasn't me. Um, I almost got more out of just relaxing and watching a DVD for an hour or two in my free time <laughs> or going and having a hot chocolate with my German friends. Like oh. that's what I needed for me as an athlete. Oh. And I think like anything in, in life and in business, like we've all got our strengths and our weaknesses and um, you work out what is good for you to perform. Oh. Oh. Yeah, what makes you I've always been fascinated with how Olympic athletes actually cope with, you know, the pressure of having trained for so many years and dedicated, you know, it's the dedication and the discipline and giving up. You said it was a lonely life. It felt a bit lonely at some points because you 
had to behave in a certain way to make sure that you were in optimum, you know, health and, um, you know, as good as you could be, which, which is huge sacrifice. And then it all comes down to that, you know, one or two days or sometimes just one single event, doesn't it? Um, and I just, I've always been fascinated by how on earth people cope with that amount of, of pressure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, like, yeah, it was huge. It was huge on the whole team, on the skeleton team. You know, we knew we needed to bring home a medal to keep the sport alive and to keep the funding and to make sure that, you know, the next year UK sport would give the money and lottery you know it's all that knock-on effect of you have to bring home those medals and we've all seen that with each Olympics like we need to bring home x medals from this sport and this and this and this so we knew we had to bring home a medal whether it was the guys or the girls um so yeah there was a lot of pressure and the research and development that had gone into the sport in that last year whether that was through being in wind tunnels that we did you know designing better race suits um yeah you know so much that went into it mm. but um yeah I mean ultimately you can yeah like you said only do what you can and try and take away the pressure knowing that you had done you know all of the training properly and you've done it all and that's that's all you can do do your very very best every single day mm. Mm. yeah indeed um great gosh that's amazing congratulations and it's a real privilege to speak to you and and for you to share um share your story um gosh amazing is there anything else you'd like to share or anything else you'd like to mention in terms of relating you know performing at, at such a such an elite level um to to business I, you know and anything else that we can learn from from your experiences yeah no I mean pfft. Crikey is it's probably just the same as simple as it sounds. It really is um, having the trust in your team and having everyone together, making sure you are working towards that one goal. I mean, a business ultimately still has one goal, whether that's make more sales or I don't know, make a certain amount of money a year, you know, and, and breaking it down into those little bite-sized chunks, breaking it down into that little SWOT analysis and the pie chart, get those goals and, you know, if you went into your business and said to every person, right, what are you trying to achieve by the end of today? Will they give you an answer? I don't know. Like, you know, what what is it? Um, and I think as an athlete, you're always working towards a goal, clearly a long-term goal, an Olympics, maybe a shorter one, a world champs every single year. Maybe it's making a team. Maybe it's every single week doing a race and you have to get a certain result. And you're so results driven. You have to perform, you have to get those results, otherwise you're kicked off the team. And so I think that would never really happen in a business in the same brutal way. <laughs> yes, you probably have to get a certain amount of sales or something, otherwise you might get sacked. But ultimately, they can't really sack you unless you do something really bad. Um, and yet in sport, yeah, if you're not good enough, you're kicked off. Simple as wow. that, brutal. So I think that means that you're always on it. There's always another athlete that can take your place um and yeah working towards those goals constantly wanting to improve yourself um and then ultimately having that trust within your team that everyone's doing their very best to perform and that you know you're trusting that person sat at the desk next to you that they're doing their work you know that they mm. are doing their best for that common goal that you're all invested in mm. 
yeah mm-hmm. to me unless you have all of that those real simple basic things then you're not going to achieve or you're not going to reach your full potential or yeah, um, yeah I agree having a common goal and having everybody be aware of it is so important it, it can be motivating it can be demotivating if it's not there and it helps people to prioritize and understand what you know what the um objectives are for this week or what they should be focusing on and and all of that stuff Mm. wonderful thank you tell me about your book yeah my book um yeah talent to triumph um it's how athletes turn potential into high performance so I wrote that oh crikey when did it come out like last October so Mm -hmm. I mean yeah it was brewing in me I always wanted to write one I never did it after Olympics but it's like top tips lessons it's yes got my story threaded throughout but it's certainly not an autobiography I interviewed so many athletes from winter summer sports or oh for example like Jason Fox from SAS you know special forces um or someone like Rebecca Adlington you know multiple medals whether it's um Dame Sarah story from cycling so it's me sort of um 10 chapters going through from starting your sport transitioning in whether that is preparation mindset um what else have I got like bits of media at the end whether it's goal setting um managing setbacks injuries fear uh and then yeah I've kind of put in like my stories from my life and then backed it up with other stories and quotes from all these other top athletes so yeah it's quite unique Um, there's sort of not really uh, I guess a multi-sport discipline sort of book out there like it um yeah I mean it's all my own work and pictures from my own psychology book and sort of a few things that I said today about negatives to positives um I mean, I aimed it at teenage athletes, but ultimately I've had quite a few business people buy it and being like, well, yeah, I put that into my business. Like, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I'm chuffed with it. Um, I'm pleased that I finally did it. Um, and yeah, yeah trying to make a difference with, you know, trying to, what can you do? Those little things to, to up your game and find those 1% and, you know, I want people to put it into their book, you know, their sports bag and scribble in it and write in it and just... <laughs> you know use it um yeah brilliant sounds great excellent thank you so much um yeah I think um all that remains to say is thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak to me today and um, I'm really really grateful for your time and um congratulations again on your amazing achievement thank you so much thank (laughs) you thank you you, Amy bye-bye